Welcome to ADHD Flourishing, about living awesomely with autism and ADHD. You deserve recognition for both the challenges and the superpowers of this unique neurotype. Let's celebrate wisdom and support from real-life stories, and talk strategies to manage the difficulties of day-to-day life, so we can move beyond that to thriving and building a sustainable and awesome life. If you want to be here, you are accepted here, and you belong. I'm your ADHD host, Mattia Murray. Let's do this. Welcome to my guest, Will Curb, any and all pronouns, the host of the Hacking Your ADHD podcast, which is how I found them. And we're each going to be on each other's podcast. So we'll get a full two hours eventually or, you know, or so of <laughs> the two of us together, which is really great because what we're in part talking about today is the subclinical autism plus ADHD, um, which I think is a very much more common experience than a lot of people realize, certainly than a lot of clinicians recognize. So I'm very, very excited to talk about that. And is there anything else you'd like to add about how you're thinking about yourself in the world or what you do or anything you want people to know about you? Now I feel like, oh, I do this to guess. I ask them for like introductions and I'm like, oh yeah, they that suddenly on the spot kind of thing, even though I've been preparing for this, like since we started talking. Uh, but no, yeah, I think that's a good indication of who I am. I uh, am very interested in ADHD since my podcast, Hacking Your ADHD. But uh, as I learned about a lot of the comorbidities with ADHD, autism is one of those common ones that I think a lot of people are curious about and is something that just like ADHD has terrible representation in popular media. So we don't actually know what it is often. Yeah. Can you talk more about what that journey was like for you or like, what were the things that made you go, oh man, I should, I should look into this for myself. So, well, for getting my, I'll start with uh, ADHD since I got that late diagnosis, but not super late. It was in my twenties. So I went, had already gone through school, college and that without diagnosis, lots of fun doing that. Uh, Looking back, I'm like, man, that could have been so much easier. Yeah, for real. Although I was, uh, I did have a uh, dyslexia diagnosis since I was a little kid. And now in retrospect, should also include dyscalculia, but because <laughs> numbers are also so much fun to keep in order. Um, I went through my ADHD diagnosis uh, because I have three siblings. All three of them have ADHD. Two younger ones, one older one. And I was like, okay, this is probably some this is genetic this is probably something i should look into and they were like yeah you like i went through the i can't remember the name of the formal testing for adhd but i went through that and yeah this is just clearly adhd and after that it took a while for me to do anything about my adhd because again popular media does not produce lots of like ideas of like what adhd actually is and what can be accounted for so i should have looked into it earlier, but it took me a number of years to actually be like, hey, I should do something about this. Um, and so then that's when I started doing ADHD coaching, reading about it, and eventually launching my podcast. From there, uh, I had a lot more time to think about ADHD and look into it when I was researching about ADHD, seeing comorbidities, being like, okay, very common with anxiety, depression, dyslexia. It's a one of the highest for ADHD. And then uh, autism is right up there, although it is a interesting correlation that I see people get wrong because they're like 50% of um, people with autism also have ADHD, roughly. And 
So they go, oh, so 50% of ADHD folks have autism. That's it's a Venn diagram where one 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 of the circles is much larger than the other. So even though it is common with ADHD, it's not like a 50% thing. But yeah, learning about that and being like, hey, I have a lot of these traits because I'm following autism creators on TikTok, on Twitter, reading about like, yeah, this is interesting. I did a episode about the like very sensitive people and like learning like, hey, that's not really a great thing. That's a like way to kind of like be dismissive of autism traits and be like, this is something that's different because of all the stigma that exists around autism still and learn being like, Hey, yeah, I have a lot of issues with clothing. I have issues with like, I have so many sensory issues that are just not fun to deal with. I have a lot of uh, problems with social cues and uh, other social anxiety issues. And then from there, I was like, Hey, I can, I have health insurance. I can just ask to see if I can get that, uh, get that um, process of evaluation and went through that. I mean, it was a little different for me because autism is one of those things that you have to see when you're a kid. So often as an adult, they'll be interviewing your parents as well. Both my parents had passed, so that was not an option. We just looked at old school reports for that. And I, as I went through that process, they were like, at first they were like, I don't know why we're like you're communicating well enough. But then as I was like doing the test with them, they're like, okay, I think there's something more here. We should keep looking at this. Um, but then at the end, they ended up with a uh, subclinical diagnosis, which is an interesting place to exist because it feels when we hear subclinical, we it's that is not a clear definition at all for anybody. Right, else. exactly. Um, and really what it just means is you have autism traits, but not enough to receive a full diagnosis. And with autism, uh, as my evaluator was explaining to me, you have to have all of the traits like at some level. With like ADHD, it's a also a spectrum disorder, but because there are so many, since there's two or three types and or presentations now, three presentations, that means that like you can have a variety of symptoms and still have ADHD. With the current autism diagnosis, you have to have all of the symptoms from my understanding. And that proof of it being a lifelong, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. I mean, I... <laughs> This is not why we're here, but I will not be surprised if the current labels that we're using for both autism and ADHD change drastically in our lifetimes, let alone at some point in the future, right? Like there's, there's so much we're learning about how the actual brain is functioning and like what's happening in there. Uh, not to mention just what is it, what does it even mean to be subclinically autistic if it's a pervasive brain development thing, right? If your brain has developed in this way and you now have an autistic brain, what does it mean to be subclinical in that? To me, that sounds more like a social construction versus an actual description of your particular neurochemistry, right? Which currently we're not looking at when we test people. It's just the, how does it sound to someone who's trained in this and uh, allowed to give you the label? Yeah. And especially with like a later diagnosis, lifetime of masking like yeah. there are times that i don't know that i have the mask on yeah and to you know make a somewhat dark but real point because there is a high suicide rate in the autistic community relative to the holistic community 
if you can't cope and if you can't mask and if you can't function enough to like stay alive or at least have people helping you stay alive, you just don't make it to get diagnosed later in life. So there's also, you know, anyway, that's again, a whole other thing, but I, I, I'm really personally bothered by this idea that just because you've managed to survive and like sort of create a life for yourself that you don't need help or that your problem isn't that bad. And I think that's what a lot of us are used to hearing in some form at this point. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that uh, I think about a lot in my content is how, um, especially for um, women with an ADHD diagnosis or lack of an ADHD diagnosis is that ADHD is often viewed as a diagnosis that you only get if you are affecting other people. Mm -hmm. If you're not causing problems, which is what we see a lot in the inattentive type, then well, why why get the diagnosis is from a lot of clinicians like, hey, you're we, you're not different. You're just a little scatterbrained or something. You're not causing problems. And I'm like, yeah, that's why you have that hyperactive type so much more prevalent in diagnosis. And since that's a evaluation that gets uh, or diagnosis much stronger in boys, of course, we're going to see higher rates in of diagnosis in boys because Girls aren't causing causing the same problems that the boys are, so they're not getting the diagnosis. Yeah, and it's like that's frustrating because it's like ADHD does not just make it hard for me to interact with the world; it makes it hard to interact with myself. When I'm like, "Man, I want to do the dishes, and I can't make myself do the dishes." Like executive function sucks. It really does. Oh, it really does. Um, so. I, I'm curious if if you want to talk about this, and if you don't, that's totally fine. But how did you feel getting that subclinical diagnosis? Like, were you bothered by it? Was it something where you did that change your view of yourself um, in either direction? I mean, it confirmed a lot. Uh, well, especially with how my but my evaluator uh, judged me. Uh, judge, wrong word. Um, evaluated me. Uh, was and the explanation of the subclinical diagnosis. She's like, you have quite a few autism traits, but do they come from autism? That's harder to determine. I mean, especially because this is just you know interviews and tests that nothing where they're like they can like definitively say these things. Um, one of the ADHD people I really like following um, and seeing their talks from is Dr. Roberto Oliveria and. He has this great metaphor for how to determine how comorbidities affect your ability to do things. And it's like, who's driving the bus? Am I doing this trait because of ADHD? Am I doing this because of anxiety? And maybe it's both. But if I'm treating that symptom of whatever I'm doing, you know, being like, I can't get something done. It's a different way to treat it if it's from anxiety or if it's from ADHD, uh, because this executive dysfunction, I have ways to deal with it. If it's anxiety, it's like, okay, maybe I need to calm down and do something else. Um, and maybe it's the same thing, but it's a important distinction to be like, okay, who's driving the bus on this? And so that was kind of the idea that my evaluator is talking about. You have these autism symptoms, but are they driven by your ADHD, which is much more strongly presenting in you? So. If I'm having trouble with social cues, is it because I am unable to perceive them 
Or is it because I have ADHD and I'm not paying attention? Same outcome, but one is, but how, how I would cope with that is a different mechanism. And so there was a number of those things where it's just like, okay, who's driving the bus on these symptoms? My evaluator felt like a lot more of it was from ADHD. So it didn't change how I viewed myself so much uh, because there wasn't a lot of, I was like, these are all things I know about myself already. But the diagnosis being like, hey, I do have uh, symptoms that are not explained by ADHD. So there is some level of that in me and using that as an, as a tool to explain behavior, I do think was very helpful when I'm like going, oh, I'm doing this like really obsessive sorting and organizing of my stuff because not because of ADHD, because that, that it's think this is boring, but because I do have, you know, a touch of autism in those, that area. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think, I mean, that was sort of my road in as well was that when I, cause I got my ADHD diagnosis technically, and I say technically because it was a very begrudging diagnosis on the uh, <laughs> part of the interviewer. Um, but in 2017. And so for a while I was like, oh, this like explains so much about why I'm struggling to show up to appointments and, you know, all this stuff. But I got to the point where I was like, this just, this does not explain everything by any means. The other thing I've been thinking about a lot lately and having conversations with people about is in particular, and you, you brought up anxiety, but anxiety and depression in particular, I like I, a line that really stuck with me that somebody said was, man, I wish that it was not just accepted in the clinical world that all autistic people are just going to be anxious mm -hmm. because yes, we do need more certainty and we do need a different type of communication and maybe organization around things and maybe need more routine, but it absolutely is possible to set up a life where anxiety and depression, and, and I, I associate burnout and depression very heavily as well, having experienced them separately, but also together, um, that there's just this other set of things that it's just as kind of assumed that a lot of people with ADHD and autism will end up having. And it's just because the world is hard to deal with and we don't have enough support, you know, but yeah. even just, just anecdotally, how many people have started stimulant medication for ADHD and then been like, oh, my depression's gone. Now, obviously that's not everybody by any means, but how many people have said that and just been like, oh, it was not depression. It literally was just the effects in my life of my neurodivergence and it wasn't its own separate thing. So anyway, that's a huge blob of thoughts. It's not really a question, but I, I have been thinking a lot about the, how like the autism and, and depression in particular are just sort of like, uh, sorry, uh, uh, anxiety and depression. I mean that anxiety and depression are almost these, uh, they end up being almost side effects yeah. of our neurotype as opposed to just their own whole thing. Although for some people they are their own whole thing. So it's complicated. Yeah. I mean, it is like a, like, do you have depression because you have depression or do you have depression because you're living in a world that does not is fairly hostile to your needs. Yep. And doesn't like you. <laughs> yeah. And tells you just fit in. Um, that yeah. was an interesting piece of my, uh, subclinical diagnosis. They're like, also you should get, do something about your depression. And I was like, Oh, am I being diagnosed with depression? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. Uh, and so that, that did lead to me getting on antidepressants for a time, uh, mm -hmm. which I 
went off of because of side effects where I was, mm. I got some great tinnitus. <laughs> mm. Like, oh, just ringing all the time that has at least lessened now, but did not go away completely. Uh, mm-hmm. But the the weird thing about it too is like I was on antidepressants for about a month and then after going off of them, the depression didn't come back. Cool. Yeah. I was like, oh, great. Yeah. I remember distinctly being on them and being like, it is upsetting that taking these makes me feel so much better. <laughs> God like, damn it. <laughs> really? This is like, oh, just take this one pill. I'm like, I'm also offended when medication works. <laughs> yeah. It's like, <laughs> I'm like this. And especially for like changing my mood. And I'm just, yeah. and I was like, man, I can't believe that it was just like these, this, like just taking this makes it me feel better like that. And that kind of shifted my mindset to be like, oh, that is not like, but often my depression felt justified mm-hmm. when I had this thing like, oh, you, you're just not depressed now when you take this pill. I was like, oh, I guess that was not justified at all. I was just the depression argue like that's often that my problem is like, I feel so justified in my emotions that I'm like, I don't try and seek out help for them. And so it was having this person be like, Hey, you should do this. And I was like, okay. And then doing the thing and be like, this, this is not what I thought it was. Yeah. This is just my brain being mean to me. Yeah. And that, that story I think is, I mean, obviously you're, you're a sample of one, but I think that's such a good example of how we just really don't understand what's going on in the brain still to a huge yeah. degree, you know? Yeah. Cause we have like that model of, you know, chemical imbalance, but it's mm-hmm. not that that's just cause like, there's no evidence for the chemical right. imbalance, exactly. unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, if it was that we, we'd be like, we know what to do. Yeah. Uh, so it's figuring out, okay, yeah, we don't know what's going on. Let's try some things and maybe they'll work. Maybe they won't. And, you know, I, I still am like, can't believe just taking antidepressants for a month like fixed that area of my life wild did it help you do other things that helped you keep feeling better do you think like did you have any other like changes in that time that you might ascribe to ongoing feeling better uh i wouldn't say there's a vast i mean it was like this was probably 2021 that i did did this um so there, there was, was nothing else going on in the environment at that time so yeah <laughs> yeah it was like kids at home all the time being like oh my god uh uh there was i mean i would say like yeah there was we had the aspects of the next couple of years things becoming more opened up but in the most upsetting ways possible as i mean like yeah, yeah. we're just gonna do it yeah F- fuck disabled people yeah, it is, you know, and it's because uh, I've got COVID twice from my son going to school, and I'm mm. this is, yeah, not great. <laughs> like I would, I want him both to go to school and also not to get the diseases, but that's apparently not an option. Yeah, still mad about all of it. America is just <laughs> not doing a great job on so many fronts. No, and it's like you like look at you're like okay, well, what are the numbers out now? Oh, they're much worse than they used to be. Yep. And we're doing nothing. Just recently, I mean, we just recently had the second highest COVID spike of the entire pandemic. And Mm -hmm. the only people who I mentioned that to who knew about it were also disabled. I didn't know any 
non-disabled people who even knew that it was happening because the news wasn't even bothering to report it. Yeah, it's it's wild just to be like, you know, like I see this. I'm like, I can't say I know what the news is reporting because I don't follow <laughs> any mainstream news sources. But like, since I'm not hearing about it from other sources, I'm like, yeah, it's probably not being yeah. widely disseminated information. And I know that the uh, chemical sort of theory or model of depression has been pretty thoroughly debunked at this point. Um, Cause I mean, anybody who knows the history of this, they basically were like, Hey, we found a medication that increases serotonin. What could we use it for? So it was created from a marketing perspective, not from a biological foundation. However, uh, I did see some really cool research from 2018 about how there's ser- a bunch of serotonin in the spinal column and that it particularly uh, activates motor neurons and basically helps us move. So like it helps us say, go from sitting to standing and walking and like walking to running and stuff. And so if you have, uh, if you don't have enough serotonin to do that activation in your spinal column, it can be a problem. Um, also 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. So the gut skin brain axis I'm obsessed with is that whole thing. And, and a lot of autistic people have gut problems, um, ongoing, which is also related to anxiety because if you are stressed out and anxious, it can affect your gut. So there's just like this huge swath of things that we just, so the reason I thought of the spine serotonin thing is because, um, every time I've taken something that's increased serotonin, uh, including like supplements and stuff that are supposed to do that. Cause I've experimented with a bunch of stuff. I have always felt better and it's always helped me with like transition and task related stuff. Like I notice it helps my ADHD symptoms more than anything else, more than like mood per se. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, well, I wonder if that's because it's literally affecting my motor neurons in my spine and like literally helping me get into movement. And then when I get into movement and I'm actually doing things, when I feel a sense of forward momentum or progress in some way, and I don't feel stuck, it's a lot easier. It's that same inertia that now I'm in movement instead of inertia stuckness, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I totally, it is wild how our environment and what we're doing affects our mental state. Like actually moving forward, going for a walk and actually doing the forward movement makes you feel like you're making progress. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I saw a study about how like the size of the room you're in affects how big of a thought you're going to have, like the scale (laughs) of your thinking. So like, I'm in a like tiny little closet here. So I'm like very detailed here. But if I like go outside, I'm going to have bigger thoughts about the world because that's funny. And it like, it seemed like it was, um, controlled enough to be plausible. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't like a completely cuckoo study, but we're such weird little creatures. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's like, and I'm like, like, I know like the research behind like power poses turned out to not be great, mm-hmm. but there is a lot of like, yeah, how you present yourself in the world is how your brain goes. Yeah. This is what we are. Oh yeah. And also, I mean, again, total tangent rabbit hole to not go down right now, but I think it's called sensory motor psychotherapy. I read a book on that last year and it's basically like, oh, hey, if your trauma has you holding or bracing in this position, doing, using your body in ways that you're unused to can literally help you release traumatic events. It's this whole, anyway, whole thing. Yeah. Like um, a, yeah. Shaking meditations. Those two. Yeah. I've done, I've done that trauma releasing exercises. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Okay. I do. I want to kind of like, <laughs> it's not like my brain's going. Um, oh, one thing I did want to say about the the like movement stuff 
I am so mad that this works, but when I am feeling grumpy and I go on a walk, literally even for five minutes, if I literally just go outside and like walk to the park and walk back, it doesn't have to be very, I lit, my mood improves by like 400%. It's so annoying. <laughs> yeah. So it's nice that it works, but it's, it's annoying to me that it works because it's so small. And I'm just like, oh, right. I need to leave my house periodically. I can't just sit here. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's the same thing with like, we, we feel justified in how we're feeling. So going on a walk shouldn't fix it because that doesn't change any of the aspects of what we were feeling, except it does. So I find myself doing walks daily and I'm like, this is really good for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm the other kind of big thing I'm curious about in your experience with the getting the subclinical diagnosis is. Has it helped you get more support either literally or sort of socially? Like, do you, or how do you, uh, maybe another way of asking that question is like, how have you presented this to the people around you and how have they taken it? And has it helped you actually get your needs met better? It's an interesting question because I'm not out with my, a with the autism diagnosis as much as I am with my ADHD. It's not something where I hide it or like deny that it happened at all. But it is just one of those like, don't also present that information. Like, I, I often don't present the ADHD side unless someone's like, oh, hey, what do you do? Then I'm like, well, I run this podcast. And so that's something that's gonna come up. But, but you know, like my, my wife knows, because um, she was part of the diagnostic process, they like interviewed her as well. And it is something where like we will be like oh this that is this behavior you're doing does feel like it is a from autism it doesn't feel like it's a adhd or something else and this is also something where we look for some of those same things in our kids to be like oh how can we help them you know like we have headphones for the us when we go uh out to things in case they're overstimulated and being more cognizant of what's going on with them. So for me, it doesn't affect how I interact too much other than me being like occasionally having an explanation for what's going on, being like, oh, that's that's what this is. And then being like, if that's that, then, you know, I shouldn't be trying to muscle my way through that. Like muscling your way through sensory issues is the worst. Yeah, doesn't work. <laughs> You know, so it's like, okay, yeah, I'm gonna, if I go grocery shopping, I'm going to be have headphones on and I'm listening to something. I don't want to, like, I don't want to get overwhelmed at the grocery store with just being like, it is loud and they're playing terrible music and the lights are awful and everything that's terrible about grocery shopping. Yeah, so usually it's just an a aid in diagnosing my own behaviors. And it is useful to just have a, oh, that's this, not this. Mm-hmm. I'm also, I mean, I'm sure it's impossible to piece this apart, but for me, it improved my mental health so much to have that set of information to just be like, oh, cause I had, I had thought so many things were just trauma mm -hmm. and therefore in theory fixable. So I was like, in theory, if I heal enough, these things will go away and learning like, nope, I just need a lot of certainty and like. I will get upset when plans change last minute. And that's, 
not going to change. You know, I might learn, I, I might learn how to handle it better. And I have a lot fewer meltdowns, but the, what I was kind of, the point I was kind of getting at, at the beginning there was like, I wonder if that was a part of the depression, just not coming back, like having a, oh, now I've got like a whole different explanation for what's happening in my life. Yeah. I mean, I certainly think that can be an aspect of it because there is plenty of stuff where it's just like, oh yeah, it's just that. And I'm not, that's harder to change in a permanent way. So I'm not going to worry about it. We're just going to mm-hmm. work around it and figure, you know, it's, I mean, often that's when I'm doing my podcast, I'm just looking for solutions to problems with ADHD being like, don't do this in the stupidest way possible. Do this in a way that works with your brain. And this is a continuation of that kind of mentality being like, okay, what works with my brain? Clearly not what I was doing. Yeah. A word that I think about a lot, and I I, <laughs> I don't know how much this resonates with people um, because I think some people recognize shame in themselves and some people are like, no, 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 I'm not ashamed of myself. But then when something happens and your inner critic is going wild, like that's to me, that's part of what shame is, is like that internal voice of just like, I'm fucking up. I'm doing a bad job. I'm doing it in the wrong way. Um, you know, perfectionism is a part of that. And the way I was raised is a part of that. But I feel like for me, the, the labels and the understanding what's happening and, and even just knowing kind of the difference between a feature and a bug in my own self, like, right. Mm -hmm. Like this is a, again, like a very different between a problem that could be addressed versus this is just the way my brain works for me. It just like permanently eliminated one one of the layers of shame inside me and just be like yeah this is this is the way it is and i think there's a little bit of a like stubborn kind of fuck you within that to people who are who have been mean to me because of that or who are mistreating me because of that that i'm just like oh this is not about me at all and recognizing that like internalized ableism but also just the ableism in the culture um, again, that was another long rambly thing that wasn't really a question, but uh, I'm curious if you've had any of that experience with like that sense of shame or the inner critic lessening. I've done a lot of work with my inner critic uh, mm-hmm. to the point that sometimes my inner critic is mean in the opposite direction where I'm like, why can't I do that? And it's like, it's your stupid ADHD. You know this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> God, you're right. <laughs> like, okay, thanks. Uh, and because it was like, I had I had a lot of problems with perfectionism, uh, but I remember it coming to a big revelation when I was, you know, driving along, taking my daughter to school, listening to Frozen soundtrack, and being like, thinking about perfection and being like, man, if I'm basing my worth on what I can produce, but I don't think you can produce perfect products, I'm making it so I can never value myself. Mm. And that was a good revelation to be like, man, trying to base my value on perfectionism means that I will never have value. And then later revising that to being like, don't put your value on what you produce. <laughs> like, that's also not helpful. That's a terrible, terrible way to exist. Cause yeah, like I'm like, cause, and that came from a lot from like, I don't value other people on what they produce. I love my kids regardless. Maybe I should extend that same thought process to myself. Uh, And so I've worked a lot on my inner critic there and getting rid of perfectionism. Although I've recently had a conversation with my therapist where we're talking about a lot of these social things. And it's like, oh, am I creating 
social perfectionism where I'm not interacting with people because I want to have a perfect interaction. Oh God, no, that's okay. <laughs> there it is. I again. thought I was, yeah, it's like <laughs> I thought I was more past this perfectionism issue than I thought <laughs> than I was. Uh, yeah, but yeah, there is like definitely an aspect of oh hey, if I have um yeah, as I said, like my inner critic will be like, hey, that's your ADHD. It can also do that for you know. Like, oh yeah, you just, this is, this is the tism. <laughs> I'm like, okay, guess I figure out a different solution for this, you know, as like this, uh, social perfectionism thing. It's like, okay, what's, how do I approach this so that I'm not trying to be socially perfect, uh, doing social perfectionism? How do I, and also sometimes like the, the conversation had come up with like, I don't want to interact with the other parents while I'm waiting for the bus in the mm. morning. Like I'm tired. I don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, maybe I don't have like, there's no reason I need to. And the other day I did. And I was like, Oh, this is why I do not like these people. <laughs> and it was just like, Oh yeah. Sometimes the intuition you get from this is spot on. Like, yeah, I don't want to interact with these people. This is not actually a problem I have to solve. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, why, why do, why would I need to interact with these people that I don't want to interact with? It's okay. I don't have to, to fall down the yeah. trap of trying to be holistic. Yes. Oh my God. I love that. Anytime somebody is trying to solve a problem and then they're like, wait, I could just not do this at all. I'm like, yes, it's mm -hmm. <laughs> my favorite. It's just like, Yeah. I can, and I think about this a lot from my own, my own experience that there are things that just require so much emotional labor or, uh, you know, self-soothing or, you know, emotional regulation during and after. And it's like, yeah, I can do those things, but why would I? It's kind of like being friends with someone who's just an asshole all the time. You're like, yeah, you can, you can manage around it. But why would you put your time into that? I think about this, you know, with I'm thinking of my parents in particular. I'm like, why would I spend time with my parents who don't like me and are really mean to me when I have so many awesome friends that I already like don't talk to as much as I would like? Like we have, you know, one one life and so much time. And like, why would I put the time in to fixing a problem that I don't even need to engage with is the short version of that. Yeah. Well, especially with people who aren't trying to fix their end of the problem. Exactly. They're like, we're not the problem. You just need to do X, Y, or Z. I, mm -hmm. I have the same issue with my in-laws. And it's just like, this is, <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it is complicated because there are like situations like, yeah, I do have, there are, there are people I'm going to have to deal with that I don't like. Okay. And, but I need to be able to identify when is that the case? When is it a case where I can just be like, oh, I'm just going to stand 10 feet down the road and not talk to the parents and listen to my audiobook. Yeah. Also just had a really lovely experience with a friend visiting where it was just really easy to communicate around needing space when we needed space. And I kind of said that at like the beginning of the long weekend, I was like, if you need to, I mean, obviously you can go in the guest room and close the door and I'll know you're like <laughs> doing your own thing. But like, if you, you know, want just time alone at the house or like, if you need space, like we can do that. And, uh, you know, when I was, when I would feel kind of done or needing a break, I could just go do that. And it wasn't weird. 
And that's the really lovely thing about having um, not just neurodivergent friends, but neurodivergent friends who who know what's up with their yeah. own <laughs> system as well. Yeah, because it's nice to be able to have not be masking, but also be like, hey, it's not just masking that takes I have only so much of a social battery. And mm -hmm. even though I enjoy spending time with you, I also enjoy spending time reading and doing nothing and not being around other people and worrying yeah. about not the masking aspects, but just being the worry about being around other people and bugging them. Like I don't but like this is one of the things that I always am like this happens in my household a lot where my daughter stims by singing. My wife has um, misophonia, which gets triggered by the singing. And it's just like, oh, that is a problem. Like that they are both in the right to be doing what they're doing. So it's just like when that's the currently, like they just need to separate. Yeah. And that's a really, I, I feel like that's the kind of question that people ask me the most often that I feel like I don't have a great answer to, which is basically like my kids' sensory needs conflict directly with my own mm -hmm. and it is terrible and I'm in pain all the time. And I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> that might not be fixable in the most traditional sense. Yeah. But it, I mean, uh, for, for us, it often is being like, okay, uh, either find a way for my daughter to stim in a different way that is not going to be upsetting for my wife or have my wife do something that's, you know, maybe she wears headphones, maybe she mm -hmm. goes to another room and recovers so that it's not going to be an issue for her. Yeah. It's compromises there where, yeah, you both can't be just existing in the same way. <laughs> Cause like, I'm like, would we have my daughter like switch? The, she's like, she knows that she's not supposed to keep singing, but it's so hard for her to stop. <laughs> Like, I'm like, oh, poor girl, you want to stop, but you can't. Yeah, it's a, I feel like it's an ongoing uh, negotiation, basically, for nerd virgin households, <laughs> figuring all that stuff out. Yeah, it is. It is a, a, a balancing act and it is always changing. And you have the bonus, it sounds like, of everybody involved basically being on board with uh, hey, all of our needs are valid, but also this is not working, which, you know, a lot of people don't have that support. Say, for example, uh, single parents where their other co-parent is just doesn't believe any of the neurodivergent mm -hmm. stuff, right? Which I see all the time. Yeah, it is. I'm so thankful that in my partnership with my wife, we can talk through these things, we can understand the needs and like, in the moment, things can get hot and spicy and be really unpleasant, but we can come back and be like, okay, we did not handle that the best. How can we try and do this better next time? Yeah. I think that is one of the problems that people often see too online is they're like, I have to be this perfect parent all the time. And it's like, it's not going to happen. Like, right. you, would it be better? Maybe. Uh, I, I have this belief that if you were the perfect parent, you would mess up your kid simply by being the perfect parent because yep. they would never have that relationship ever again in their life. Totally. And also if they're also, you know, ADHD and or autistic there, I mean, this is something I said to a parent the other day. I was like, you can't protect your kid from being made fun of for being different. Like you can't protect them every moment of the day. You're not there all the time. And the older they get, the more that true that's going to be right. So like you can't stop that you can't stop them from being mistreated, but mm -hmm. 
but I think the as a parent modeling, hey, I'm having a hard time with this stimulus. Like this is a hard day for me. I'm having a bad time. I'm handling it as best I can. And maybe that means there's going to be some relationship repair later because that's normal to happen mm-hmm. at some point. Um, that to me feels like such a better foundation for a kid who's about to go out into the world and be treated badly, essentially. I mean, not that that's our only experience, but like it's going to happen. Yeah. And to know that we're going to have bad days. Yeah. And we're all going to have bad days. We're all going to have people that are not great to us. And mm-hmm. um, I was just thinking about this earlier um, today. It's like about, when we have those experiences, how do we learn the right lessons and not learn the wrong lessons? Because often, you know, with what we're dealing with, we have this trauma associated and it's the trauma is us learning the wrong lesson. We're like, man, I dealt with this crappy person. I'm not going to talk to people anymore because people are awful. It's like, well, awful people are awful. There's a lot of nice people out there. Maybe we can figure this out in a different way. Yeah, I really like that idea. Is there anything else in particular about the kind of subclinical diagnosis or experience, however you think of it, um, or just anything else? And and one maybe question I kind of had, if you want to answer this is like, who would you be like, Hey, maybe you should look into this. <laughs> what I'd say about the subclinical diagnosis is this is an idea that I come up with on my podcast is that it doesn't matter if you have ADHD, if you are doing things like if you are diagnosed with ADHD, if you are doing things that help your brain, like there are some benefits to getting a diagnosis for any disorder, because there are also plenty of problems with self-diagnosis where it's just like, yeah, there's a lot of overlap of symptoms and we want to make sure that we're doing things like, as we were saying, who's driving the bus? If we're thinking, you know, it's anxiety driving the bus, but it's really ADHD because we've been self-diagnosing with anxiety, then we're going to have trouble fixing those, our, our problems. So it's good to, I, I see, while I find self-diagnosis a very handy tool and something that is important for equity, um, getting a formal diagnosis just to eliminate other possibilities is often a really good thing to do if you can. Like, again, equity, it's not available. But as for people who should look into it, I think the biggest sign for me when I was growing up that there was something that I needed to look into was just this question that always hovered over me is, why is this so hard for me? It seems so easy for everyone else. Why is this so hard for me? And if you find yourself asking like, hey, I should be able to do this. Why this ever-present should of like all these things in my life, like this seems like I don't get what's going on. Then it's worth looking at because maybe... Maybe it's autism, maybe it's ADHD, maybe it's a number of other mental health conditions. Because if it feels like things should be easier and they're not, there is something underneath there. It's not just you're a crappy person. No one is naturally a crappy person. It's There's something under the hood that we need to take a look at. Thank you. Yeah, that really resonates with me. And that was a constant for me growing up. It was like, why is this basic stuff so hard? And like some of it feeling impossible, you know, stuff I would just like give up and not even try. Yeah. And it's a question that still pops into my head. Like, why is this so hard for me? And then with what I've been doing, it is, oh, it's this, I can do something about this. You know, I can, I could just do a different order. Like I was like the silly example that always comes to me is that like relining the trash can after I was t- took the trash out. I'm like, why can't I not ever remember to do this? 
uh, it's really annoying when I throw trash into like the online trash can. Why can't it's like, oh, what if I just reline the trash can before I take the trash out? Just pull the bag out, reline it then. Oh, that fixes everything. That this isn't a problem anymore. <laughs> yep. Or like putting three trash bags in at once and just taking, you know, the dirty yep. one out. Like this is and this is where I will say, uh I I'm always a fan of of two things if you're encountering these types of simple problems, which is one, just like looking online and like being in community with people with mm -hmm. brains similar to yours and just hearing what works for them, what tips work for them. And then also, I don't even say this is this directly as much as I probably should, given that it's my job, but like working with a coach for a bit, like I had a couple of sessions recently with somebody who, whose friend was just like, I think you're autistic. And then I was like, the first person she talked to, and I'm like, how lucky to just get a couple hours with me to just be like, here's all the terms you should look into. Here's a bunch of stuff that helps with the stuff that you're saying, like really, really practical, direct tips like that. Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just super on the practical side of things for if we can just get all these little problems and these little annoyances to be less loud in your brain, then it's easier to zoom out and look at your life and be like, okay. And, and then what do you want long term? Like now that these things are more out of the way. And again, you can find that stuff for free online. You can find it through community. And I love that as well, but anything that kind of helps you get those. Cause you, I, I just don't think of the super practical solutions for myself. I'm just like, mm -hmm. Oh, nope, I'm stuck in this problem. Oh no. And then, but then for someone else, I'm like, Oh, here's five creative solutions that you could try. Yeah. <laughs> it's like harder to see for yourself. It absolutely. Yeah. When you work with someone else, they're just, they'll like ask you a simple question. You're just like, cause they're like, well, why do you have to do it like that? And you're like, cause <laughs> that's how you do it <laughs> oh no the foundation of what i believe is falling apart <laughs> ah, so true awesome well thank you so much this has been lovely and i'm looking forward to doing it again uh yeah. for your podcast uh where would you like people to find you i um exist occasionally on twitter or maybe other social media handles i have but i don't go there uh i'm it is on my list. Maybe do that work on that this year, but probably won't happen. Uh, so no promises there. Uh, but if you want to find out more about my podcast, Hacking Your ADHD, on all podcast players, really easy to download, or you can go to the website, hackingyouradhd.com. Awesome. And we will link to that. Yeah. Were you saying something else? I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't give the Twitter handle, which is also at Hacking Your ADHD, which awesome. makes it very easy to. Very clear. Yeah. All, all the same Love thing. It. I was trying to figure out a name being like, well, this one's open. That's a winner. Thank you so much. And uh, it's one of the things I was thinking, because we're, we're talking on Zoom, right? So I'm seeing you. Um, one of the ways I've heard it put in various forms is like autistic people move differently. Like there's this visible uh, difference in the way that we move. And to me, you just seem so obviously autistic from like that, those subtle little things. And it's just, I don't know, it's just something I've picked up on over time. Um, so anyway, I think it's, I just always think it's funny because it's another thing people ask me sometimes when we're talking to like, do you think I'm autistic? And I'm like, I'm not a doctor. Um, <laughs> but if we feel very comfortable talking to each other and like our little physical quirks or whatever, aren't making each other feel weird. Like, yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's a sign. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, uh, if that, I mean, that there's another great thing to look for is to be like, oh, I have a ton of neurodivergent friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is a huge red flag that you should look into things. <laughs> a huge bisexual flag waving back and forth. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh my God. Why do, like, 
but yeah, for, I, I have friends. I'm just like, yeah, you should. Based on our friend group, you're the odd man out right now. Mm-hmm. Very true. Lovely. We will send people your way and hacking your ADHD is awesome. And I love it because I love the practical side of things like that. Just like, let's get the day to day under wraps so we can actually think bigger thoughts. And now I'm th- going to think about how my little, my little box of an office is making me think smaller thoughts now. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, detail oriented thoughts is how I Yeah, like exactly. I do all my best administrative work in here. It's great. Lovely. All righty. Thank you. I hope that sparked some ideas or possibilities for your own journey. If you'd like to go deeper, I invite you to click on the link in the show notes to join my newsletter, where I share more on these topics, point you to community resources, and share cute pictures of animals. I only send it when I have something meaningful to say. A friend put it well. With your newsletter, I feel like the predictability is in the quality, not the quantity, and it feels delightfully magical to have it pop up whenever it feels like it. Plus, you can respond directly to me, which I love. That link is in the show notes, or you can easily find it at my website, mattiamarie.com, M-A-T-T-I-A-M-A-U-R-E-E.com. 